You sisters know that my skin has been glowing lately. And I'm here to tell you my secret. Oak Essentials. You've heard us talk about their line of luxurious products before, and we're so excited to have them as a sponsor of OK Sister Podcast because now you can join in on the glowy goodness. You know Oak Essentials is legit because it was created by none other than our favorite brand ever, Jenny Kane. Oak Essentials is known for its simple approach to self-care with a lineup of foundational skincare staples made with high-quality ingredients that drive results. It aims to unlock healthy, glowing skin with decadent and hydrating ingredients that give you a luxe, dewy glow. I won't shut up about the Moisture Rich Balm. It's a nutrient-rich balm that supports collagen production and delivers serious hydration for a luminous glow. And a luminous glow indeed. The way my skin feels like butter after applying this balm. This balm will make you never want to wear makeup again. And you can apply generously during your night routine to lock in moisture as you dream. It's the definition of beauty sleep. Treat yourself or someone else this season. You sisters will get 15% off and a free organic honey-based restorative mask with their first order. Oh my God, what a deal. When you use code OKSIS15 at checkout. That's right. 15% off plus a gift with your first order at O-A-K-E-S-S-E-N-T-I-A-L-S.com. Promo code OKSIS15, OKAYSIS15. Go ahead and treat yourself. From luxurious skincare to meaningful self care, you deserve it. Welcome to OK Sis Podcast. Hi, sisters. I'm Maddie. And I'm Scout. And we are sisters IRL. I'm the older one. Yes, Scout. We know. We're cultural observers. And of curious minds. Get ready for sisterly banter while we chat about fixations, learnings, and personal growth. We promise it'll be a good time. As long as you don't get too loud, Mads. Welcome to the sisterhood. Hi, sisters. Welcome to my mental health chats installment number two. Again, it feels weird not having Mads on the mic and starting the episode off super high energy for me, but I am so excited about today's episode. You just have me. I don't have a guest on for my mental health chats. I decided that while over the past two and a half years of podcasting, which really was the impetus for me telling my story, living with bipolar disorder and connecting with so many incredible women either who were dealing with a mental illness or if they knew someone who had a mental illness that they needed support around, um, I recognize that I haven't really told my story from beginning to end with all of the ebbs and flows, all of the really difficult times, the great times, the learning, etc. So I thought that doing a very linear timeline would be best so that I could really dive into to how it all started as well as, you know, the middle when I was unfunctioning and in the hospital to today. So we're going to start from when I was 14 years old, or maybe we'll start from 13. Actually, you know what? Fuck it. We're starting from when I was in kindergarten and moving all the way up to now, which I am 29 years old, very soon to turn 30, which is scary. So I have been living with a mental illness for over 15 years now. So I've learned a thing or two. And and I know that you've all picked up on parts of my stories, mostly the learnings and the healings that I've done, which I am so appreciative for. Um, I hope this gives a little bit of context into 
I suppose the milestones or the realities of what living with bipolar disorder for me has looked like. If this episode resonates with you, I am about halfway through my May mental health challenge, which if you follow me on Instagram at Scout Sobel, you can join for the last two weeks. Essentially what it is, it's for the woman who really wants to start prioritizing their mental health, but potentially finds that overwhelming and just wants like a five minute, really soulful, nourishing activity to do. So if you sign up at the link in my bio, you get an email from me every single day with a five minute free resource tool mindset or practice or ritual to engage in that day. You get added to my close friends on Instagram at Scout Sobel for extra mental health content and support every single day. And then I also go live on Wednesdays um, throughout the month of May. So I would be so honored if we could continue the conversation there and see you sister sign up and join in in this community of women who are not only prioritizing their mental health, but being so incredibly vulnerable and intimate with their stories and showing up in ways that I could not even imagine. So you can head over to my Instagram at Scout Sobel, the link in my bio to sign up for that. Okay, sisters, let's start at the beginning, shall we? I'm just going to kind of briefly talk about what I was like as a child, what I was like in kindergarten. I remember one of my most distinct first memories is being in kindergarten and experiencing anxiety for the first time. I remember it was Shabbat. I went to a Jewish elementary school. And so the whole school, kindergarten to fifth grade, which was literally maybe 60 or 70 people, it was a very small school. We would congregate in the kindergarten room for Shabbat and we would sit, you know, they put out rows of chairs for all of us to sit at. And the guy next to me, as we were standing, they told us, you know, to sit. I think it was like some sort of prayer thing. And the guy next to me, the kid, the little kid next to me, pulled out the chair of the kid in front of us. And when the kid went to sit down, he fell on the floor. And the teacher ran over. And since I was in such close proximity, the teacher was hovering over us, you know, picturing myself as a four-year-old little girl with this big teacher over my head. And she thought that I did it. And she started screaming at me. And that was the moment that I first um, really experienced anxiety. And I, I remember not being able to shake it. I remember feeling anxious that entire weekend and not understanding what was happening to my body, feeling this really, really intense, intense um, heart palpitations, this intense, almost like uh, pulsation going through my body. And that coupled with the fact that that was the first time I'd ever really gotten in trouble, even though it sorted itself out and they realized I didn't do it. I recognized that I never wanted to feel that way again. And I think in that moment, two things were stemmed. I was introduced to intense anxiety. Um, I recognized that I was sensitive and I also never wanted to get in trouble from authority figures again. And I think that's been a very through line, not with my bipolar disorder, but just with some of my shadow and weaknesses, etc. So that is one of my first very, very vivid early memories as a child. I also, um, as a kindergartner, first grader, I can't exactly recall something in me wants to say four or five, I had a reoccurring dream that I was being raped by an older man. And it has been something that I have tried to, sorry, that's hard for me to say. That's something I don't, I don't normally share, but this is what I signed up for. This is what I want to do so that I can show you that you don't have to be ashamed of parts of your life. But I had a reoccurring dream that an older man was raping me when I was four or five. 
I don't know how I understood what that was or got that image. It has been something I've been trying to uncover in therapy as I've gotten older. And it is also the reason that my psychosis, which we'll get into later, um, manifests the way that it does. On a spiritual level, I've been told that a spirit attached to me who wasn't allowed to be reincarnated into this world and therefore a male spirit uh, recognized potentially my uh, boundaryless energy and attached to me. Um, that's one explanation. Um, I'm, there's a bunch of other Western psychological explanations. Take what you will. I've been really attached to different explanations at different points in my life. But that was happening at the same time. And so by the time I was in first grade, I really didn't want to socialize. It was very difficult for my mom to get me to go to school in the morning. I would have complete mental breakdowns in the morning. They wouldn't be able to get me dressed because I would like kick my legs and feet and get violent and scream and cry so that I wouldn't have to go to school. I never wanted to go to camp. I would tell my mom, like, I I just didn't want to go. And she said, fine, if you don't go to camp, you have to stay in your room all day. And that was a dream to me. I wanted to be alone. I wanted to read. I wanted to write. I didn't want to be in social settings. I didn't want to have responsibilities. And if you kind of look back, even as a child from like four to six-ish, maybe seven, I was having an inability or difficulty in functioning in like my responsibilities to go to school, my responsibilities to show up socially, which also manifested as my bipolar disorder got uh, more severe as time went on. So to see those parallels is, is very, very interesting. In middle school, I was definitely a perfectionist. I was um, like Miss Goody Two Shoes. Is that what they call it? I didn't want to tell anybody my grades because I just wanted them to be A+. I didn't cuss. I was very prude, quote unquote, because I wouldn't play truth or dare and kiss boys in the back of the bus, which is so weird to think about now. But I think I did have a little bit of a hard time socially fitting in. I was bullied a little bit sixth and seventh grade for, for being different in that sense. And it wasn't until eighth grade that I started. I think the puberty started hitting, the emotions started hitting, and I started questioning or examining, um, exploring life in a way that felt emotionally heavier. I would write in my notebook all these emotional lyrics and sit in my room and listen to She Will Be Loved by Maroon 5 over and over again. And that's really where the introduction of, I guess, uh, heavier emotions started showing up. I was totally happy and fine. And I had a really great eighth grade, actually. It was really, really great. Um, But by the time I entered high school, I was 14 years old when I entered high school. And uh, that's kind of when shit first hit the fan. I found out that my mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And I think that same week, had a breakup with one of my first boyfriends. And so I just went down so significantly. I remember it was really this overnight transformation. I was wearing monochromatic sweats and not the cute kind you see today that Mads wears. They were super, super not cute and very sloppy. And I didn't shower. And I isolated a lot um, after school, I would just sit in my room by myself and write and be on AIM, um, if you know what that is. Um, I don't know. Some of you might not. 
I started playing around with binging and purging. And while I don't identify as having an eating disorder, I definitely was trying to grasp on to any sort of level of control. Obviously, the actions that I was taking on the outside were really reflective of the way I thought about myself on the inside. I started self-harming on my ankles specifically, and then my school found out um, about the self-harm and told my parents, and I was put into therapy. Uh, therapy though was not a very, you know, easy first, uh, experience, I guess. I didn't dive into therapy willingly. I was an angsty teenager. I was in the middle of my first depressive episode, not understanding what was going on. And therapy was not talked about back then. None of my friends were in therapy. And so I really resisted the first few therapists. I gave them a lot of attitude. I refused to speak the whole time. Until I found this therapist, I think he was my fourth one, who said, okay, we don't have to talk. Do you want to talk about TV? And we just talked about, I think, reality TV show for an hour. And so I agreed to see him again. And in working with him throughout high school, I went to him about two two to four times a month. So it was, it was like sometimes every week and then sometimes every other week. But he really talked about himself a lot in the beginning of our sessions, which I didn't obviously now know that's not normal, but that was kind of my first introduction, which was weird. It was, I remember, I remember, and my friends knew that I was in therapy. I think there was just this understanding that I needed emotional support. My friends knew that I was heavily depressed for a very long time. They knew that I did go up and down in high school. They were very cognizant of that. Um, sometimes they poked fun at me like, oh, Scout, go write a poem, you know, whatever, because I was kind of really heavy into the arts and into literature and poetry. But going to therapy, I don't remember if I felt such a stigma around it. I don't think I loved going. Um, but it, no one really treated me differently for going, which I'm super grateful for. It was just kind of this thing that I had to do. But in high school, I remember there would be moments where I felt as if I couldn't, you know, finish my homework assignment, not because the assignment was too hard, but because I was really in an emotional paralysis where I didn't know how to move forward in my life. I didn't know how to complete the responsibility that was looking me in the eye. I didn't know how to go from A to Z. And that would turn on and off randomly throughout high school. I had or took so many mental health days constantly. I was always leaving school to go sit at a coffee shop and just read and write and be alone. I had panic attacks at school. So, you know, I also took a test while I was in therapy. It was a 500 question test. And that test, the results were that I was borderline chronic to clinical borderline between clinical and chronic depression. But at that time, I think, which is a blessing and a curse in many ways, I think there's pros and cons to this. The psychiatrist, the therapist didn't know if I was just an angsty, rebellious, hormonal teenager, or if I was suffering from a more chemical imbalance or more serious emotional issues that needed to be dealt with and untangled and, you know, given space to properly heal. And so it wasn't until I went to college. So I went to Berkeley Community College um, because I didn't get into any colleges, which you can listen to Mads and my college episode, which I think we did at the end of 2020. Um, 
when I went to college, I went to community college and I lived in an apartment with UC Berkeley students that were sophomores. Sisters, my goal these days is to always look put together when I leave the house. Nothing over the top or super dressed up or anything like that. I just want to look put together and feel good about what I'm wearing in an effortless yet refined way. When I look at my closet every single morning and think about what I can wear that is chic and intentional, I usually end up grabbing one of my Jenny Kane sweaters and I always end up loving the way I look and the way I feel in them. You all know, sisters, that when I envision my highest self, I am wearing Jenny Kane. Their sweaters are the quintessential must-have item. I cannot stop wearing my Marina set. I throw it on and immediately feel like I'm in a Nancy Myers movie, like I could just walk on the beach in Santa Barbara. It is the coastal grandma aesthetic. My favorite Jenny Kane sweater right now is their everyday sweater in taupe. This is the definition of a staple that every woman must have in their wardrobe. Sisters, trust me on this one. I wear it with leggings, oversized jeans, and a little kitten heel or a silk maxi skirt. Legit, Mads and I are so obsessed with wearing our Johnny Kane sweaters that we've literally shown up both wearing the same sweater once, the white alpaca cocoon crew neck, which is this deliciously oversized sweater. Yeah, that moment takes the cake. Both of us walking in with our matching Jenny Kane sweaters. We're obsessed. Can't take them off. Wearing them every day. The type of staples that save your outfit. That is what I love about their entire collection. It is truly the art of simplicity. They focus on comfort, quality, and timeless designs. You can curate a wardrobe that never goes out of style. Find your new uniform at JennyKane.com. Our listeners get 15% off your first order when you use code OKSIS at checkout. That's 15% off your first order, J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com, promo code OKSIS. O-K-A-Y-S-I-S. Let getting dressed be one less thing to worry about. Ever since having a baby, I've been extremely conscious about what I spend my money on and which products I use. And clothing is no different. I want my wardrobe to be sustainable, good quality, and timeless. You have to be talking about Whimsy and Row, right? Whimsy and Row is an LA-grown, eco-conscious brand born out of the love for cute, comfy, and classic styles. Every piece is made by women for women. Quality goods, local production, natural and organic fabrics. Yes, please give me all the linens. Just like OK Sister, Whimsy and Row is based on the idea that women are multidimensional. There's a balance of flirty feminine and minimal masculine in all of our wardrobes, and Whimsy and Row means exactly that. From special occasions to everyday effortless styles, their clothing is meant to mix and match and wear on repeat. I have been wearing their Kira pant in black linen probably three times a week. Sisters, if you've been listening to this podcast or following me on Instagram, you know that Whimsy and Rose Kira Pant in Black Linen is a sisterhood staple at this point. Founder Rachel Temko created the brand back in 2014 because she wanted to create an approachable and inclusive brand that cared for the people and the planet first. Get the full Whimsy experience IRL at their Venice location or shop online at whimsyandrow.com. Their store in Venice is so cute. I can attest. And if you're in LA, I highly recommend stopping by. They are always putting on these amazing community events. They just launched their spring summer collection and we will be living in it all summer long. Visit their website, whimsyandrow.com. That's W-H-I-M-S-Y-A-N-D-R-O-W.com and use code OKSISTER for 15% off. 
the community college was not on a campus. It was actually just one building. And so there wasn't this communal feeling. It didn't feel like college. And I was very socially isolated. And I started to develop extreme paranoia and psychosis that men were following me home, that they were underneath my bed waiting to rape and kill me, that they were in my closet, um, that they were in my trunk, you know, that they would open fire at me any moment. And it became a point that it was so intense that I would wake up in the middle of the night just completely frozen with fear and I would plan escape routes. I would figure out how I was going to escape this man who was not in my room, but I thought he was. And when that started taking over me to a point where like I couldn't even get in my car without my friends looking around my entire car to show me evidence that nobody was there. And even when they did that and I got into the car, I would have to be on the phone with my dad while I was driving home in case someone jumped out of my back seat. We started identifying that I was losing touch with reality and that my mind was starting to play games on me that weren't really in the quote unquote, and I use this word quite loosely, normal human experience or normal 19, 18 year old experience that I was going through. And I remember calling my dad hysterically crying on the balcony in my apartment and him being a little bit confused. He couldn't really grasp what was happening to me and he didn't know if it was maybe because my parents had just gotten divorced and I had left to go to college and was having difficulty with the transition but there was something in me then at that point that said no there's something happening to me there's something bigger happening that if not given the proper medical and therapeutic attention has the capability to destroy me. And so we decided that I should transfer to Sarah Lawrence College, which was more communal. There was more community support. It wasn't as isolating. But the summer before I went to Sarah Lawrence, I was put into more intensive therapy. And we I was introduced to psychiatrists and started um, playing around with psychiatric medications. And I got a therapist out in New York when I transferred to Sarah Lawrence and you know, I knew that I had bipolar or I had a mental illness because I loved Sarah Lawrence. It was the perfect place for me. I think about it and just know that that's exactly where my soul fits. The type of academia and the teachers and the way they um, set up with no majors, no grades, all essays. You get to interview the teachers before you pick the classes. My friends and I would sit on the lawn and just talk about books for hours I got to roam around Manhattan, which was only 30 minutes away by train on the weekends. And it was just, I met friends there that I've never had, just really, really soulful people that saw me so significantly. And, you know, I was in heaven and then I got depressed towards the middle of second semester. And I was supposed to do an internship in the city since it seemed like I was doing better. So I was going to stay all summer and do an internship and I had a complete panic attack once my friends left and I was alone and I was ready to start the internship and so I came home we tweaked more medication and that's when the diagnosis of bipolar was starting to get thrown around it was just starting to be talked about maybe it's you know maybe we're not sure and that was really scary for me because I wasn't you know back then mental health was not talked about like it was today. I didn't know anybody with a mental illness. Instagram was a thing. Was it even around at that point? I don't think, I don't think Insta. Oh no, Instagram existed. 
at that, I think it was like literally birthed that year. Um, there wasn't self-care or mental health matters, like no viral hashtags, no viral infographics. I was really the only one that I knew that was suffering with mental health problems. And so I went home that summer. I did yoga every single day. I had no responsibilities. I just focused on myself and I felt so much better. And then I went back to school for my first semester of junior year. And within a week, the depression started creeping in. I couldn't get myself to French class. I couldn't get myself to class. I was having massive pas- massive panic attacks, feeling so heavily depressed. And I remember sitting in my therapist's office and she told me that with the help of talking to my doctors and therapists back at home, that they had come to a conclusion that I was manic depressive. I don't remember much from that meeting appointment. For some reason, she didn't use the word bipolar. She used the word manic depressive. And so I I remember feeling confused, but also that something really major had just happened to me. And for whatever reason, I walked home from that therapist to the house that me and my two best friends had rented to live together. And I looked it up once I got home. I I think I needed to be in a safe space to really, really understand what had just happened to me. And when I saw that manic depressive disorder was bipolar disorder, I completely broke down. I cried so hard. I was so scared. I thought my life was done for. I thought it was a death sentence. I thought I would never be able to function in society. And I was on the next flight home to San Diego. And I never returned to Sarah Lawrence. And I dropped out of college. When I got home, my dad knew that there at that point, had understood what a mental illness was, but he wasn't a hundred percent understanding that this was really beyond my control at that point. And he's so amazing. He did so much research to really, really truly understand me. And now he really does. And he supported me the entire way, but that's really at that point in time, people didn't really understand mental illness. And so my family had to do a lot of research. You know, Mad says a lot that she didn't understand why I was so down. She just thought I was lazy and it, it took her a while to recognize that it was a disease. My mother, on the other hand, um, really understood that from day one since she also um, lives with depression. So once I came home, it was definitely all hands on deck with the support group. I entered an outpatient program And through that, the outpatient program essentially was, I think, two and a half months. I went every single morning for four hours. I had lecture about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then we had support groups. And after that, I felt strong enough to hold a minimum wage job as a gelato scooper. But one night, I started having suicidal ideation, and my therapist urged me to go to the ER to have a psychiatric emergency evaluation just so that I could get my meds tweaked in the moment because of that suicidal ideation. And so I, I think my, I don't remember how I got there. I think my, I think I drove there and I was sitting at this point, I'm 20 years old. I was sitting in the ER and since I had suicidal ideation, they ushered me in first and I was sitting with the nurse And she started asking me all of these questions. And she said, you know, they ask the way they ask is very sneaky. And you're clearly already under so much distress and 
anxiety and you're scared. And she asked me if I had a plan to end my life. And I remember telling her, well, if I did, I would do it something like this. I I did not have a plan in that moment. Um, It was just suicidal ideation, which is definitely no joke. But since I had mentioned a plan, I was placed on a 5150. And she told me, she said, I'm placing you on a 5150. You are currently a threat to yourself and society. And I still didn't super understand what was happening to me. I was crying. There was like some fucked up wasted girl to my right. And I said, okay. And she goes, you're on a 72 hour hold in the hospital. We're going to take you to the hospital wing. And I asked if my parents could come, could, could drive me there. And she said, legally, they are not allowed to drive you. You need to be driven in an ambulance. And so in that moment, basically all my freedoms were stripped from me. I asked to go to the bathroom and I, um, a security guard had to walk me to the bathroom, had to, I wasn't allowed to lock the bathroom door. He stood outside the bathroom door, um, to make sure there was no way I could get out, nothing in there that I could harm myself with. And so I wasn't, I wasn't even allowed to like really go to the bathroom alone. And then they brought the strapper out. They stretched me to the strapper. My parents, left and got in their car to meet me there and they drove me in an ambulance to the psychiatric hospital and while I was in that ambulance I was so scared and crying I mean essentially they locked me up legally I was legally locked up and I one of the EMTs looked at me he was a guy probably 25 he looked at me and said what are you thinking about And I looked up at him, which I thought was like an odd thing to ask, but it just showed how human, how he saw human being in me, how he didn't see someone who was crazy or a threat to society, a danger to themselves. He just saw somebody that was lost. So he just asked me, what are you thinking about? And I looked up at him and I said, from now on, whoever comes into my life that I want to be close to me, I'm going to have to tell them that I was 5150'd. And he looked back at me and he said, if they love you, it won't matter. I wish I had that man's name so that I could thank him for seeing me as a person, for exhibiting such compassion and empathy, for holding space for me to even express what I was thinking in a moment of complete chaos and fear. He forever changed my life. And that's all. We just, I didn't say anything after that. And we rode in silence. But I just felt like less of a number and more of a living, breathing soul in that moment. So I owe him a really big debt of gratitude. And um, then I was taken to the inpatient and... Of course, my dad being 
a chef and he loves cooking for his children. He's cooked for us our whole life. He brought me, he made sure that I wasn't eating the hospital food, but that I was delivered sushi, which believe me, did not go over well with the other patients. But it was very scary. It was a very scary. Um, I got out 24 hours later because my sister was graduating and I was, I couldn't imagine not being there for her graduation. And I called her from the hospital. They took away everything. They took away my notebook because it had a bookmark, a string bookmark that could be used. They took away my phone. They took away my cigarettes. They took away everything. And so I used the landline phone to call my sister and I told her that I was in the hospital and she was very confused. She didn't understand, um, but I made it a mission to get out of there to see her graduate. And um, I talked to the psychiatrist. I said that I was not going to harm or kill myself, um, that I was definitely stable uh, enough to not do that. And uh, he let me out and I was able to attend Mad's graduation. So after inpatient, I met, well, I didn't meet. I started dating my husband, then boyfriend, Adam. Adam and I uh, dated and met when I was 14. We dated twice throughout high school. And so um, I had known who he was. And he was a year and a half sober, which I'm going to have him on on this installment just to talk about our relationship and his experience with me and, and mental illness. But we started dating. And he said to me in the beginning of our relationship, he said, I don't care if you're depressed. If you're depressed and hopeless, I can't be in this relationship. If you're depressed and hopeful, then I can be here. And something in my mind just totally shifted. I had lost my college experience. I had quit jobs and like three internships at that point. I had been locked up. I had gone through outpatient. I had done, you know, experimented with psychiatric meds that weren't working. And something in me just said, I'm not going to lose him too. I'm not going to let my bipolar disorder take some, take a future that I really saw with him. So that's really when I started my self-healing journey. That was very, very, I took it very seriously. I started, the first thing I did was infuse my days with hope And then the second thing I did was start going to support groups, which I attribute to my healing so significantly. There are free support groups. Um, NAMI has them, N-A-M-I. I highly suggest support groups are such a beautiful, intentional, incredible way to heal. I started reading self-help books, et cetera, and I just started walking down this path. Now, that doesn't mean that my healing was miraculously on an upward trajectory at the age of 21. Between the ages of 21 and now, a lot has happened. For one, I continued to go up and down significantly. I, through taking my self-healing very seriously, I was able to then hold a job and um, go back to school, which I ultimately ended up dropping out for a career move. But that's like my entrepreneurial journey. That's a different story. But in those years, um, I would have months that were terrible, where I was crying all the time, where I didn't know if I could do it. I went to Paris with my family um, at the age of 21. 
and had total panic attacks in the middle of nice restaurants um, that my dad had to escort me out. I started developing a relationship or developing the symptoms of catatonia, which is where my nervous system would just go into overdrive and I would become completely paralyzed. The first place this happened to, I was actually in England on a family vacation and we were sitting at a restaurant and all of a sudden I couldn't move my body. I couldn't speak. I could just move my eyes and I just became paralyzed for I think an hour and a half. It was very scary for my husband and my mom and my sister to have to witness because we didn't know if something was neurologically wrong with me or if it was an anxiety thing. It was very confusing and slowly but surely I got out of the fog and I could walk and started talking and then I just passed out for a few hours. I had to sleep for a very long time and these little spurts of catatonia would happen often, so much so that I went to the ER once during a major one because they kept happening over and over again and I was totally paralyzed and it felt as if I couldn't cognitively process or understand things and it just felt like for six, you know, for 10 minutes or eight hours, I was, my brain was mush and I couldn't move my body. And I actually went through a catatonic spell that lasted about a month that wiped me out so hard that I was in bed for an entire month. And every time I tried to do something like talk on the phone or send an email, my whole body would go into overdrive and I would return to this catatonic state. So figuring out that that wasn't neurological after going through MRIs and CAT scans, but it was actually conversion disorder, which is which people with bipolar disorder, a very, very, very small amount of them suffer from this, which is essentially when you go catatonic and you cannot move your body and your brain really stops working at an optimal level and it just feels very, very slowed down cognitively. I was able to start recognizing how seriously I had to manage that. So reducing my anxiety, making sure that I'm getting sleep, making sure that I have rest time so that I'm not putting myself into overdrive to then enter into these really, really terrible, scary, and, you know, they really derail my days, my weeks, my months when that happens. So that was a really scary thing that my family was going through, not knowing if this was physical, neurological, mental, emotional, what what was it? And it was attributed to my bipolar disorder. And so they prescribed me a medication that really helps me come out of it. But I remember when I was first diagnosed with it in the ER, they said the cure was to knock me out for three days on like high doses of sleep medication. And that felt so extreme. So I didn't do that. But in a smaller dose, there's like a sleep medication that just allows your nervous system to reset. So um, I started taking that at night at times when I felt my workload was higher. I was so anxious just in order to not fry my nervous system out, which I don't really have, I don't really suffer from catatonic episodes so significantly anymore. They do come up briefly for an hour, 30 minutes here and there, but it really is nothing like what I was experiencing in that like year. Progressively, they just kept happening in really, really major episodes. So that was what I was dealing with around the age of 24 to 25. I was... I dropped out of college to pursue career entrepreneurial stuff and I was very functioning. 
I got to a point where I had healed myself to the point where I became overly functioning and entrepreneurship really, really helped me and my mental health stay the course. It gave me passion. It gave me responsibility. It gave me purpose and fulfillment. And so I was really, really running with that. But I still had so much emotional healing to do. I would still have anxiety attacks. I would still call my husband and tell him to come home from work because I was so depressed. And the kind of last rock bottom that I experienced was, I believe it was the age of 27. I was put on a medication that was so bad. I mean, before I've been put on so many terrible medications. One, I couldn't get out of bed till 1 p.m. in the afternoon. One made my anxiety so much worse. One made my depression worse. One didn't do anything. I've had kind of like a big trial and error with that. But um, I was put on this medication and it wasn't helpful. It made me very tired. I gained a significant amount of weight. And so after a year, I decided to go off it and switch to a different medication. This was four months into running Scouts Agency, so two years ago. So yeah, 27. And the psychiatrist did not tell me that the withdrawals from that medication were so severe. And I remember just crying hysterically for two weeks straight. I was so hurt in so much pain I was suffering so significantly and I remember texting my husband saying I can't do this anymore and that's when he came home and looked at me and said how would you feel if I got a terminal cancer diagnosis every three months. That's how it feels with you. Every three months I don't know if you're going to make it out. Every three months I don't know if my wife is going to be alive anymore. I don't know if you can continue to take this pain and It was a wake-up call to me on so, so many levels. In that moment, I saw how my mental illness and bipolar disorder was so affecting the man that I loved, the man that I promised a life together, and I saw the life that I was giving him. Not to say that my bipolar disorder was my choice, but at that point, at the age of 27, after being in the healing game for so long after having all of the tools, the therapist, the psychiatrist, the support groups, the medication, I knew that I had to take radical responsibility if my healing and my control over my emotions was ever going to support me in a healthy and beautiful way. And so with that, I did, I think, you know, I didn't necessarily do anything so different other than take that radical responsibility, make that contract with myself that when I felt down, when I felt anxious, depressed, um, catatonic, psychosis, paranoia, suicidal ideation, voices in my head, that I would first go to myself, that I would first hold myself with confidence and love and strength that I would figure out if I could manage my life emotionally without outsourcing all of my emotions to my support group. And so that was two years ago. I went on a different medication that really, really supported me in this next radical, you know, phase of healing. I then a year after that started working with Amy Natalie, the coach that I had on on last installation of Scouts Mental Health Chats, which is really when I was able to 
do deep, deep, deep healing and work that I think my mind, my soul, and my body had been begging me to do since I was 14 years old, but it was so convoluted and intense and scary and layered that I had to get through all of these symptoms, all of these stages of healing from being a college dropout and unfunctioning in society to being overfunctioning yet dealing with intense symptoms such as catatonia and depressive breakdowns to finally coming to a place where I could really deal with the emotional turmoil that was underneath all of this so that I could learn how to be safe in my emotions because I never felt safe in my emotions. And so through all of that, Today, I think you sisters know how different I am, how much more strong, stronger I am, how I hold such reverence and beauty over my life, how I think my bipolar disorder is my superpower, how it has guided me and led me to some of the most incredibly magical and abundant gifts in my life. It led me to entrepreneurship, which is why I am so grateful because I run Scouts Agency, which I have an incredible team and fills me up every single day. I'm able to do OKSIS podcast with my sister. I'm launching a book this year. I financially, um, you know, support me and my husband while he goes through his PhD program. It's it's crazy to look at my life today and see the see how long it took me to get here to see the girl who had just been introduced to depression and didn't understand what was happening, but just followed the notions and went to therapy to the girl who was losing touch with reality when psychosis visited her to the girl who had to drop out of college, who was given a mental illness diagnosis in a time when mental health and mental illness were not talked about, who didn't even know what her future would have in store from her for her to the girl who tried at the age of 21 to take control of her healing and started that self-responsibility path but wasn't able to fully fulfill that wish of hers or that desire until she was 27 to the girl who was in the ER not being able to move from catatonia because her nervous system was so fried to the girl who made her parents sick with worry, who made her made her friends sick with worry, her sister, her husband, because at times it felt like it was too much to bear. And to the girl who now takes radical responsibility over over her life. Now I look at my emotional landscape as the one thing that has saved me in this world. Yes, I had a really fucking rough decade in my 20s, But I now know that it has set me up with this foundation for the rest of my life that I have an internal emotional compass that will always tell me if I'm in alignment, that will always tell me if I'm on purpose. It will always tell me if something is off or where I need to go if I just listen to the signs, to the mentorship, to the warning guides that they are giving me. I am so grateful, sisters, that I'm bipolar you know, they say, would you do it all over again? And honestly, doing it all over again, since fucking exhausting, but I would not change a thing. Because the person that I am today, the way I view my healing practices, the way I view my relationship with life, which is that it is magical, and that we are so grateful to be here, that human emotions are just a part of the experience, and that they are here to guide and tell us something that we can know that we are strong enough to go through pain because we were meant to go through pain and uncomfortable emotions. You know, I hope that a lot of this episode was my story and was my mental illness story, but 
I know you sisters know who I am today and I hope you can see that contrast. I hope you can see that if I didn't push through with my healing, that I wouldn't be where I am today. And I love my life so ridiculously. I love my life. I feel so grateful that this is what I've created for myself. But I also want you to know how long it took, right? At the age of 21, I decided to take my healing seriously, but it wasn't until the age of 28 that I was able to really hold myself in all of the ways that I am now. So if you are struggling with your mental health and you see a long road ahead, don't be afraid of it, but rather embrace it because that long road is going to shape you. You have to go through necessary steps to heal. And I'm proud if you're even considering walking down that healing path because it's hard. But after recounting my entire mental health, you know, I'm sure I left out some things, just kind of like the big points. I am so grateful to 14-year-old Scout, to 18-year-old Scout, to 20-year-old Scout, 21-year-old, 27, all versions of Scout for the fact that she kept going. So thank you, sisters, for listening to this. You can follow me on Instagram if you listened to this and felt any sort of relation or solace or felt as if you're not alone. Please DM me at Scout Sobel. I love talking to you guys about mental health. I love talking to everyone about mental health. And I just want to say how grateful I am that you guys provide me the space every single week to really, really be my full, full expression of self and to talk about these really, really personal moments in my life. And I don't feel judged, but rather I feel really welcomed and accepted. So I love you sisters and thank you for listening. If you feel so compelled, I know Mads and I would love a five-star rating and a review. And if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for, sister? What are you waiting for? I love you guys. Hey there, I'm Dr. Tracy Dalgleish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. If there's one thing I know from both my personal and clinical experience, it's that we are really good at comparing ourselves to others. We tend to get stuck in the unhelpful narratives that play on repeat in our minds, and we struggle to set boundaries and create healthy love. Each week, I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair, and being a wife, mother, and business owner to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you change the dialogue in your life. Tune in every Thursday to I'm Not Your Shrink wherever you listen to podcasts. While I'm not your shrink, I am still human and I'm excited for us to be in our vulnerability and humanness together.